0: Good morning church, as always, it's a thrill for me to be back here with you again, I've missed you, and uh, I was just thinking as we were sitting there singing, I was thinking boy my voice really sounds good today, (laughs) and then I quit singing and I realized oh it's not me, (laughs) it's singing together with the body with the saints. Thank you, worship team, for leading us. Chris, thank you for those scriptures and those cogent remarks. And I'm excited to be here and to have the opportunity of opening up the Word of God today as we proceed through the book of Ephesians. And so this is kind of an unusual situation to to jump in at this point as we're progressing through. But I've enjoyed listening in on what has come before and I trust that today we will be blessed as we look at our text for today, which is Ephesians chapter 1, verses 20 through 23, come to the end of the book of Ephesians, and, and for the sake of the context, of course, and also to be reminded of the flow of Paul's thought I'm going to read aloud to you beginning with verse 15 through the end of the chapter. And if you're able, I would like to invite you to stand together with me out of respect for the Word of God as we read aloud verses 15 through 20 of Ephesians chapter 1. The Word of God says, For this reason, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we, we come before you now as we look into the sacred word of God. And we plead with you to speak to us through your word. Father, give your spirit to us so that our own thoughts will be dismissed and, and the, the distractions of the world will, will go away for a while. And we'll just hear from your precious word. Give us that grace, Lord, and we will praise you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. So, as we've been looking at the epistle of Paul to the church at Ephesus, I would remind you that Paul has divided his letter into two parts. The first part of the letter, chapters 1 through 3, is primarily doctrinal in nature. And the last three chapters have primarily to do with the Christian's practice. And in our studies, now we are nicely into the doctrinal portion of this book. We can see that Paul is setting the foundation. He's building the theological basis, the substantial undergirding for what must be the dynamic outworking of the faith. As verse 1 tells us, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. This doctrinal foundation is being intentionally and strategically laid out for us. There is a strategic order to Paul's epistle. And we have been navigating our way through this order for a purpose. Paul is doing this foundation laying on purpose. In other words, Paul is telling them, and by extension us, the truth. Now, we don't have time to make this argument today, but we certainly could. And in certain contexts, I submit to you that we must make this argument, that there is such a phenomenon as truth. Who would have thought that we would have to argue for the reality that there is such a thing as truth? But in this utterly confused and delusional culture in which we live today, we do. And we're not talking about so-called subjective truth, that, you know, what's true for you and or what's true for me. Rather, we are talking about ultimate, objective truth. There is that. That is what the Bible gives us. Pure, undiminished, ultimate truth. Objective truth. That is what the Christian faith is built upon. And that is what Paul is giving us here. We have seen that in several sermons as we have heard from this letter previously. Our faith is based upon truth. Truth as defined by the author of truth. The only one who has the capacity to correctly declare and define what it is. The God of truth. It's not a blind faith. It's not an existential leap of faith. It's not a a hope so faith. It is divinely established ultimate truth. Make no mistake about it. And frankly, you might make a mistake about it if you begin to listen to the prevailing philosophies of our pagan culture. Or if you begin to listen to the diabolical lies of Satan and his minions as they whisper blasphemies and accusations against God's truth into our ears. Or I might add, if you' listening, listen to the puzzling and wretched thoughts of your own sinful heart when your mind conjures up confusion and doubts, which contradict the teaching of the truth of God as communicated in the very word of God, which is recorded in His holy scriptures. No, don't listen to lies. Some would say, "I don't care about doctrine." Doctrine isn't important. You just have to have faith. Faith in what? No, Paul would disagree. Our faith is based upon truth. Make no mistake. And also, brothers and sisters, make no apologies. Don't be ashamed or manipulated or bullied into being silenced and afraid of believing and living in light of God's truth. Paul, later in the letter, is going to say, saints and faithful ones, be like this. But before he gets to those exhortations, he wants to give those saints and faithful ones, and I trust that includes some of us here today, He wants to give truth upon which to base their Christian lives. By the time he is finished, there should be no argument against or questions about what he is going to tell them regarding how to live. What we shall see is you and I have every divine reason for being confident and steadfast in the faith. Again, As Paul said, he is writing to saints and faithful in Christ Jesus. And the reality, the truth is, if I may be so common, mind-blowing. So we have progressed this far in the first chapter and come to our text, verses 20 through 23. Let me re-read those verses again. Verses 20 through 23 So, what does Paul have for us here? Well, we previously saw in verse 18, the purpose Paul is giving for his current comments. That is, the focus of our study this morning. In verse 18, he says, that you may know. That you may know. There it is. That you may know. What? The hope to which... He has called you. And then Paul goes on to elaborate on that hope. And Brother Ty talked about that last week. But let me read it again. The riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us. Who believe according to the working of his great might. And now... We come to our section of the text and he finishes the sentence, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ. In previously previous weeks, we have seen uh, who these saints are, how they have been blessed by the Father in Christ Jesus. We have seen that these saints have been chosen by the Father. In fact, this has been a recurring theme so far and will continue to be. It is absolutely crucial to our understanding of all that Paul is trying to tell us that we realize that all that is being conveyed to us about our blessed standing in the faith and our hope in God's eternal blessing is dependent entirely from beginning to end on the sovereign grace of God. If we don't understand that and accept that reality, we won't understand this epistle. You will notice from the very beginning of this letter, the primary actor is God the Father. We won't take time to go Look again at this, but it is clearly overwhelmingly evident in verses 2 through 14. That Paul is telling us that our salvation and all that is implied by that is a result of God's sovereign grace and for His glory, the praise of His glory. But it doesn't end there. This perspective continues Let me read verses 17 to 18 again, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the father of glory may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Do you see this? It is all of God. It is all of grace. It is according to the Father's gracious will. As we move on, don't lose sight of the fact that all of this is of God. He has done this. He is doing this. He is working out His sovereign, gracious will. Well, now, Here we are then. We've seen that in order to accomplish His gracious will, the Father has set forth Christ. In verse 10, a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, which includes, we learned, a glorious inheritance. Brother Matthew commented on that a couple of weeks ago. Do you see the argument that Paul is building here? Do you see that it is quite rational and reasonable? It builds and builds upon itself and then continues to build. He is telling us who God is and what God has done so that you may know Know the truth, so that later in the letter he can tell us, according to what we now know that God has done, what we must do. And frankly, that takes it out of the realm of optional, out of the realm of opinion. You will clearly see all of this, I am pretty certain, as you progress through this marvelous epistle. For our time this morning, let us zero in on our verses Paul is informing us of the working of God's great might that he worked in Christ. Hence, the title of our sermon, The Mighty Work Which the Father Worked. Uh, He exposes this working which he worked. We might repeat the words of John Calvin who said it this way, According to the efficacy of the power of his strength which he wrought in Christ. Or... Calvin said, according to the efficacy which he effected. So Paul illuminates God's mighty working when he, our text tells us, raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places and put all things under Christ's feet and gave him his head over all things. Notice again, it was the Father who did this. And now we have this most remarkable and wonderful statement. Gave him as head over all things to the church. We must not overlook that particular focus. Verse 19 tells us that it was immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. That is very significant for the understanding of the epistle. The action of this great work was done by God the Father. The object of this great work was Jesus Christ. But the recipient, the benefactor of this work is us who believe. And it is no small matter to understand That if he had not redeemed us, we would not believe. And we would have no part in any of this. But he did. So we do. So let's look at it. The end of verse 19 directs our thoughts to God the Father. And the working of his great might in verse 20 tells us he worked this great work in Christ Christ. Now, we have already seen this recurring focus of Paul. A few weeks ago, when Bobby preached, I believe it was Bobby, I, I believe we were shown in that the language in them, the wording in them, in Christ, excuse me, in him, in Christ, is a fundamental matter to the point Paul is making. In verse 1, to the saints who are in Ephesus and the faithful in Christ Jesus. So let's make sure that we understand the emphasis Paul is making here. First, we are learning about God the Father, particularly who He is, and we are told about His great power. Second, we are learning about the centrality of Jesus Christ in the working out of God's purpose, His plan, His providence in the earth. And third... We are learning about what all of this means for the recipients of God's gracious purposes. That is, to the saints, also known as, we shall see, the church. And you say, Ray, you're being rather redundant here, aren't you? And my answer is, I am? Yes, I am, intentionally, because these foundational principles we need to carry with us as we study the rest of this book. We have to make sure we're standing on the right foundation. We understand what Paul is telling us here. So we're going to hammer it again and again and again, just as Paul does. So bear with me as I simply uh, try try to expound upon Paul's thinking here as we go through there. Well, what is this mighty work which the Father worked in Christ? Our text spells it out for us. It tells us, first of all, He raised him from the dead. Verse 20, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. First of all, the resurrection of Christ. Now, Just a few weeks ago, we celebrated the resurrection. Christians everywhere around the globe celebrated the resurrection. I suspect for many of us, The glorious resurrection of Christ is fresh in our minds. It ought to be. And I know that for some of you, you're like me. And every Sunday is Resurrection Sunday. That's why we rarely, almost never, miss the opportunity to gather together with the people of God to worship the resurrected Lord on the Lord's day. We understand, of course, that without the resurrection, we have no Christian faith. I don't believe for this congregation today that we need to argue for the fact of the resurrection. Of course, we could. There are times when we must. But Paul doesn't see the need to here. And for our purposes today, for this congregation, we will accept the fact that the resurrection of Christ occurred. Our question is, for what purpose is Paul mentioning it here in this text? Well, I would suggest that there are at least two significant reasons. First, this fact is highlighting God's great power. Here we see that God demonstrated the immeasurable greatness of his power when he raised Jesus from the dead. Now, that in itself is a remarkable thing. But there is something profoundly significant about this particular resurrection. There have been others who have come back from the dead. We can think of Lazarus, whom Jesus raised, which we read about in John 12. We can think about uh, Tabitha from Joppa, whom Peter raised from the dead. We read about in Acts chapter 9. And there were others. In that fabulous chapter. Chapter 11 of Hebrews. Which is sometimes referred to as the, uh, the hall of faith. In verse 35. We read women received back their dead by resurrection. But in this case. This resurrection was very different. John Gill explains. There are many articles of faith contained in this passage. As that Christ died, that he raised from the dead, that he was raised from the dead by God the Father, and that his resurrection was by the power of God. The resurrection of any person is an instance of great power. But Christ's resurrection from the dead was an instance of peculiar and special power. For he was raised from the dead as a public person, representing all his people, for whom he became a surety, and he was raised again for their justification, and to great glory in himself after he had been brought into a very low estate indeed. Matthew Henry tells us that indeed this was the great proof of the gospel to the world. And this brings us to the second significant reason. Paul mentions the resurrection in this passage, and that is because of the resurrection of Christ from the dead, we the saints who believe that is the church have been raised from the dead? Okay, my my um, my droning on and on is putting some of you to sleep here. So, because I, I, you know you should be jumping up and shouting hallelujah, <laughs> except of course I know that we don't do that here. But <laughs> n- nevertheless, it's a hallelujah statement. Okay, because of his resurrection, we the saints, the church, have been raised from the dead. That's a remarkable thing. That, that, that's a remarkable, remarkable thing. Um, and so all my comments now, I've lost my place in my notes here, and that's all right because, because I will find it. Um, yes, Henry, I'm going to look at Matthew Henry again because he goes on to say the resurrection transcript of that in ourselves, our sanctification and rising from the death of sin in conformity to Christ's resurrection is the great proof to us. On the one hand, it's the great proof of the gospel to the world. But brothers and sisters, on the other hand, it's great proof to us, right? We who were dead in our trespasses and sins, who were destitute of spiritual life and motion, who could not help ourselves, who could not raise ourselves, who could not convert ourselves or bring ourselves out of that state and condition which we were in by nature, not to mention who could not conquer any sin or the effects of sin in our lives, As Gill says, as the resurrection of Christ was the pure work of God and the display of his almighty power, so the work of faith, of grace, and conversion is the entire work of God which is begun and finished wholly by his power. Without the resurrection of Christ from the dead, there can be no resurrection of us from our spiritual death. We would still be dead in our trespasses and sins. Jesus himself testified to this. Do you recall that remarkable story of the resurrection of Lazarus? And we'll look at John chapter 11. Let's quickly read over it, beginning with verse 17. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been dead in the tomb for four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. I think the implication there that Mary, uh, excuse me, that Martha was making is, you could raise him from the dead. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know I know that in the last, uh, he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I like to think he said, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he dies, yet shall he live And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Richard Linsky explains He is himself the resurrection and the life, in whom the blessed resurrection of all believers is assured. Indeed, because God in his mighty power has raised Jesus from the dead, he also in his mighty power raised us from the dead with the promise guaranteed in Christ's resurrection that when you and I come to the end of our earthly lives, we shall continue to live in glory with him forever. Calm down, calm down. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? We've known this for a long time, but it never grows mundane. It is amazing. It, it's mind-blowing. But Paul, being Paul, gives us more. More vital information regarding the mark or the work, the mighty work of the Father which he worked. The Father has not only raised Christ from the dead, but secondly. He has exalted our risen Lord. Verses 20 and 21. That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named. Not only in this age, but also in the one to come. So let's consider the, uh, the exaltation of Christ. How is it that our Lord has been exalted? First, we're informed that Jesus has been seated at God's right hand in the heavenly places. Now, there's sometimes some confusion regarding what it means that Jesus has been seated at God's right hand. We need to understand that this is not a reference to a physical location where the risen Jesus is stuck sitting somewhere in heaven, even if close to the Father. But rather, this is a symbolic picture illustrating the ultimate authority which has been given to Christ. To be placed at the right hand of a king or other ruler, to sit at the right hand of ultimate magistrates has always been to suggest being exalted to a position of great power. Now our text tells us that it is a demonstration of the Father's great power. First, that he raised Christ from the dead. And also, verse 20 says, that he seated him... Christ at His, the Father's, right hand in the heavenly places. Thus, placing Christ in a position of ultimate authority. The fact that He is sitting down, symbolically again, indicates that the redemptive work of Christ is finished. And this is Christ's final, glorious divine posture. It's finished. Verse 21 goes on to say, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Now think this through. Who is this one who sits at the Father's right hand, who has been exalted to the position far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named now and forever. It certainly is no political party chairman or supreme dictator. It's no emperor or president or news broadcaster or entertainment celebrity or even a billionaire business tycoon. It is the resurrected and exalted Christ, the surety of salvation for all of us who are in Christ. The guarantee of our inheritance. This one has been exalted to ultimate eternal authority. Furthermore, we come to a third assessment of the mighty work of the Father. The Father has not only done his mighty work in Christ that he raised him. From the dead, and not only that he has exalted our risen Lord, but also he has secured Christ's victory. Consider the victory of Christ, verse 22. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. And he put all things under Christ's feet. And he is head over all things, all things, not just earthly things, all things, not just living things, but all things. Now, it may not always seem like all things are under his feet, but that is because either we lack an accurate perspective because of our not yet fully sanctified vision Or we simply don't believe what the Bible says is true. But a wholesome understanding of the nature of the sovereignty of God and a mature view of God's eternal purpose and plan makes it very clear that Jesus Christ is indeed and in fact the ultimate authority over all things, You see, man's earthly dominion is only a shadow of Christ's universal dominion. Matthew Henry again tells us, All creatures whatsoever are in subjection to him. They must either yield him sincere obedience or fall under the weight of his scepter and receive their doom from him. That is true. This statement by Paul takes us back to David's royal psalm 110. It is pretty clear. David is prophetically speaking about the Messiah, who is Jesus the Christ. And so when we turn there and we look, we read this in psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, that is Yahweh says to Adonai, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Do you get the impression that our Lord will be victorious over all his enemies? Yes? Then around 10 centuries later, the writer to the epistle of the Hebrews... In chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, begins his letter this way, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by his prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed as heir of all things, through whom And then if we skip down to verses 8 and 9 there in Hebrews chapter 1, we read, But but of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Oh yes, the Lord, our Lord, has ultimate authority over all the earth and he will be victorious in all his ways. Pity. Pity the foolish and rebellious people who despise the person and the rule of Jesus Christ those who disdain the Lord and His people, those who audaciously declare that they are their own final authority, that they can dismiss the law of God and live in haughty rebellion against His righteousness. Pity them. Weep for them. For they shall be crushed under the foot of our holy King. Jesus, warn them, as I warn you now, if you are one of those who arrogantly refuses to bow the knee to Christ, the Christ we have been hearing about in our study of Ephesians chapter 1, come to your senses, repent of your rebellion while there is still time. Plead for his forgiveness. Plead for his mercy. Remember, he came to save his people from their sins. All of us, all of us sinners here who are his people, every one of us has confessed and repented of our sins and cried out to God the Father that we might have redemption through the shed blood of Jesus, that we might know the forgiveness of our sins according to the riches of his grace. We have been raised from the dead, and we have an eternity of reigning with Christ Jesus to look forward to. Run for your very lives. Run to Jesus. Come to him. Come today. Come now. Our text tells us God put all things under Christ's feet and he is head over all things. And then Paul makes this remarkable statement. The Father gave Christ, the one who is head over all things, with all things under his feet, to the church. Now this is the first time Paul uses the word church in this letter. But if you go back and read through the chapter, you'll see that he has been alluding to the church all along. He uses such language as the saints, the faithful in Christ Jesus. He blessed us in Christ, chose us in him, etc. He gave Christ to the church. This is truly a gift of grace to the church, a stupendous gift. As Lenski says, Christ in his supernatural exaltation as head over everything is God's gracious gift to the church, to the una sancta, to the communion of saints composed of all true believers. Let's consider this another way. If we look at Hebrews chapter 10, the context of this portion of Hebrews is, uh, talks about the sacrifices to be made by God's people because of their sin and that God's death is the or Christ's death is the final sacrifice once for all. Beginning in verse 11, we read, and every pe- priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, his death, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Now, who is it who are being sanctified? It is the church. He has been given as head over all things to the church. Now, let me ask a question. What does that reality, that truth, do in your heart? Listen with me to the words of the great reformer, John Calvin. He says, When our minds rise to a confident anticipation of righteousness, salvation, and glory, let us learn to turn them to Christ. We still lie under the power of death. But He, raised from the dead by heavenly power, has the dominion of life. We labor under the bondage of sin. And surrounded by endless vexations are engaged in a hard warfare. But he, sitting at the right hand of the father, exercises the highest government in heaven and earth and triumphs gloriously over the enemies whom he has subdued and vanquished. We lie here mean and despised, but to him has been given a name which... Angels and men regard with reverence and devils and wicked men with dread. We are pressed down here by the scantiness of all our comforts, but he has been appointed by the Father to be the sole dispenser of all blessings. For these reasons, we shall find our advantage in directing our views to Christ that in him, as in a mirror, we may see the glorious treasures of divine grace and the unmeasurable greatness of that power, which, he ha- which has not yet been manifested in ourselves. He has been given to the church. Now, I called this victory, and certainly We see now that Paul is trying to make clear the greatness of the power that the Father is working in us in the church. But notice the sentence doesn't end there. Paul tells us the Father gave Christ, the one who is head over all things with all things under his feet to the church and he completes the sentence in verse 23, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And Paul announces this great truth, this great doctrine, that the church is the body of Christ. He says it right out, to the church, which is his body. Now this is a profound picture, Christ is the head of all things, he is the head Of the church, and the church is his body. This picture or metaphor of the church as the body of Christ is used by Paul elsewhere in Scripture, such as Romans and Corinthians, but it must be admitted it is not the easiest concept to understand. In what way? How is the church the body of Christ? We saw in verses 16 to 18, Paul kind of priming the pump in anticipation of this declaration. In fact, Dr. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones makes this observation. It is not surprising that the apostle should have prayed so earnestly that we might have the spirit of wisdom and revelation. Nor is it surprising that he repeats the the petition and says that we need to have the eyes of our understanding enlightened. For this is undoubtedly one of the highest and most sublime doctrines, and therefore one of the most difficult to understand. He then refers to chapter 5 of Ephesians, where Paul's speaking of the marriage relationship between husbands and wives, which Ty mentioned last week, and you will get to later in your study, calls the doctrine of the church as the body of Christ a mystery. Verse 32 of chapter 5 says, this mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Side note, be done with all of those who are trying to do away with marriage. I just threw that in there for you because I couldn't help myself. But this, great mystery of the church, the body of Christ. Of course, there is so much that could be considered regarding this truth, this doctrine of our union with Christ. In various scriptures, especially in the book of Romans, we learn that the body of Christ is made a likeness of what has taken place in himself. Let me just reread that sentence. Uh, The... the, uh, uh, we learn that the body of Christ is made a likeness of what has taken place in himself. The great Dutch theologian Gerhardus Voss tells us that the church in this likeness is buried with him, having, been, ha, having risen with him, are oppressed with him, and glorified with him are ordained to be conformed to his image and subsequently born brothers to follow him, the firstborn. This mystery is indeed profound. So profound, in fact, that the little phrase, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all, could warrant easily an entire sermon or two, all its own. Well, don't panic. We, we, we will resist <laughs> the temptation to do that. Although perhaps, you know, in your home groups, you might want to mind the depths of this mysterious doctrine. Let me know when you're going to do it. I'll, I'll come over. <laughs> but let me here summarize, make a few observations, and then we will conclude. In this declaration of the greatness of the power that the Father is working in us, in his church, the mighty work that he has worked, when he raised Christ from the dead, seated him at his right hand, put all things under his feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church... Which is his body, we discover something even more mind boggling. Now, catch this the church, the body of Christ, is the fullness of him who fills all in all. And there is a sense the apostle tells us in which the one who is head over all things and fills all in all is unfulfilled without his body. His church, a great paradox. What are we saying here? We, the church, are the body of Christ, the one who has ultimate authority And all things are under his feet, has been given to us, to the church, as our head. Therefore, it matters what we believe. It matters what we think. It matters what we do, for we fill up the Messiah. It matters. What we do because we are his body. The members of the church are the members of his body. He is doing his great redemptive work and he is doing it through you. His body, his church. Now, Christ doesn't need the church for his existence, he doesn't need the church for his sustenance. He doesn't need the church to give him meaning or pleasure or joy. He doesn't need the church for anything regarding his essence. No, Christ does not need us. But we are told here that he who fills all in all is filled by the church. His body. How so? Well, I submit the head must have a body over which to exert headship much like the king another picture of Christ must have a kingdom over which to rule does the shepherd have sheep does the vine have branches does the building have a cornerstone a mystical union between Jesus and his church. There is a supernatural connection. All these pictures, but Lloyd-Jones says again, all these pictures are designed to enable us to have some understanding of our relationship to our Lord Jesus Christ and especially in the two verses to which we are now devoting attention, that we may understand how the mighty power that is in him comes to us and enables us to live the Christian life and reach assurance that we are going to enjoy the purchased possession. Here's my point. The church is a divinely appointed, necessary part of God's sovereign purpose to fill the earth with his glory. The church is dynamically, eternally connected to her head and plays a proactive role in declaring the glory of God and teaching to the ends of the earth what the master has taught his disciples. This metaphor shows us that as the human body cannot live and function without its head, the head will not accomplish her goals without her body. It matters what we believe. It matters what we think. And it matters what we do. It matters at a corporate level. The Apostle Paul is going to make that very clear as he develops this letter and talks about the ministry and unity of the church. Referring predominantly to the local church. It matters what we do. It matters to the universal church what the local church does. And it matters to the local church what the individual members do. It matters to Pacific Hope Church what you do. You are the body of Christ. He is the head, the head over all things, and he has been given to you. Listen to these words from chapter 4 of Ephesians, verses 11 to 16 which you'll get to later in, in, in the studies where Paul is telling us, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Can you see why each member of the church matters? Can you see that church members who are not functioning as part of the body... Exercising their gifts in ministry are actually hindering the effectiveness of the body of the church. You, dear saints, matter to your Savior. You, dear Pacific Hope Church, matter to your head. And so I close with a final quote from Lloyd-Jones. A word of encouragement, I trust. The doctor says, When you feel your weakness and ineptitude, and as you are conscious of the forces that are set against you, remember that he, the head of the body to which you belong, is at the right hand of God, that all authority and power is in his hands. Controlling the universe and cosmos, that he is the head over all things. He can direct everything, the wind and the storm and the rain and the sunshine. He can order all things and is doing so for you. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we are amazed that you have seen fit to give your only Son, the perfect and righteous, glorious second person of the Trinity, to become a man, to become like us, to die and was raised from the dead for our behalf, that you chose us, in eternity past, to be members of your body. How we thank you for this great privilege and the great promises that come along with it. And help us, oh God, in the midst of the trials and the tribulations of life and the confusion that we see all around us, to think the truth, to remember what is real and who is in control and who will ultimately be victorious. And we along with our Lord Jesus Christ, will reign forever and ever. How we praise you for this with thanksgiving. Amen.